Good afternoon, and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Information Builders. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. Uh, we're looking forward to your participation. Send questions and comments in as they occur to you in the Q&A box. We'll take them later in the program. A uh, nice way to set up your screen is to uh, first click on the view options at the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides as big as you like them. And you want it to say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 30 minutes with our main presentation featuring Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform. Then we're going to have a five-minute interview with Sean Sutherland, Director of Healthcare Data Innovation with Information Builders. And Information Builders, again, is our sponsor today. And then we'll take your questions. So without further delay, we're going to turn it over. We've got a lot of information to cover. We're going to turn it over to our good friend and regular guest, Dr. John Kalamka. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much. And, you know, folks, I recognize in a time of COVID, you may feel some Zoom fatigue. You know, that we went from, gee, I'll have a few meetings and do Zoom once in a while to now we're 20 hours a day in this format. But I promise that our time together today will be extraordinarily helpful as you respond to COVID. At a high level, and before we go to the first slide, I just want to tell you that COVID, in my view, is five stages of response. We start with isolation. Right? We've all been in this for a few months, since probably about mid-March, and that's the flattening the curve idea. But then we need to move to a testing and contact tracing phase. We all begin to venture out, and if you do develop COVID and have a positive test, you better understand who your contacts are, so we'll be talking about that. And then we all know that a vaccine is coming, but it's in clinical trials this fall, so it's probably not going to be widely available until, say, first quarter, maybe second quarter 2021. So there'd be this pre-vaccine return to work as we all try to open up and get back to some semblance of normal. Then there's going to be a post-vaccine period. And then there's going to be a new normal, which I could argue is going to be so wildly different from what we're used to. You know, I wrote a strategic plan in my role as Mayo Clinic president of Platform and it was originally, oh, we're going to get to telemedicine ubiquity in five years. No, we're going to get to telemedicine ubiquity next week. <laughs> and so I just tell you this because as we go through the presentation today, just think about all the activities you'll need to focus on across these five stages of dealing with a pandemic. Now, government, academia, and industry all need to work together very closely. So go to the next slide, Anthony. So about a dozen weeks ago, a number of folks in industry said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all come together in a completely selfless way to contribute our expertise and deal with all the elements of COVID from supply chain to contract tracing and testing to PPE and ventilators to cures and vaccine? How do we do that? So 12 weeks ago, we decided... How about creating a nonprofit, completely neutral coalition? 
And that notion evolved into the coalition called COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition. MITRE Corporation, a federally funded research and development center, is the facilitator, the convener. And here was our notion. Any company, including those who are on this webinar, can join the group of over a thousand companies. And the answer is we come together. So, Sean, you know, for the benefit of the country, right? We just want to make healthcare better. That's all we want to do. <laughs> we'll share our plans. We will cooperate. And isn't it fascinating? You know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they all join and they're totally cooperative, right? All competitive ideas out the window during a COVID period where there's no choice but to work together on making the country a better place. No one gets paid for their work and no money is exchanged and there's nothing to sign, right? It's just, we all agree, you know, we're going to work together and be transparent and do our best. And once you do that, you join. And this is how we put over a thousand companies together to work in 15 different work groups. And I'll show you some of the elements of those work groups. But I'll tell you this is that as we look at policy and technology over this COVID period, there's some tough problems to solve. And the only way we can get them done is by working together and sharing the burden. No one organization or no one sector can do it by themselves. So next slide. Wow. So if we start looking at some of the work groups that we put together, um, we staffed these 15 work groups. Uh, you can see with these, here are the members, you know, there are a number who have publicly care of their membership. There are a few that are private about their membership, but it's a very broad set across all the various provider, payer, uh, infrastructure, and IT organizations of our country. And some of them have a real interest in data and analytics and visualization and some in supply chain and some in technologies for contact tracing. So that's fine. So we got you know, all these members, put them together into the work groups. Let's go look at the first work group. So next slide, Anthony. So supply chain, as we began isolation. Oh, oh by the way, uh, here is the website if you want to take a look at the stuff that we're talking about today. It's um, COVID19healthcarecoalition.org. So C19HCC.org. The thing about this website that I might highlight to you is that you'll find the resource library and the resource library has over 700 data sets updated daily that provide public guidance and policy. So you'll see by county, including where you live, what are the number of infections today? What are the number of deaths today? Uh, what is the trend showing? Is it trending toward, yes, we should open or no, we should not. You know, where are we with the use of NPIs? So you'll see we, for every county in the country, have shown the use of social distancing, the use of masks. Are your bars open and closed? You know, all these sorts of things that are, as we believe, the science suggests, important for flattening the curve and reducing infection rates. And all this data, it's all free, no password required, updated daily. You'll find critical supplies, clinical care outcomes, all kinds of good things on this website. Next slide. So as we think about the supply chain, so here was a challenge. We think back a few weeks ago, who needs masks? Who has masks? 
Okay, well, that's an interesting question, but here's an even better one. Which masks actually work, <laughs> right? And so we saw shipments arriving from all over the world. And the way Anthony, I sort of described this is, it was like, boy, this is reaching into my memory of the 1970s, like the sting, you know, there are 20s on the outside, but there are ones on the inside. <laughs> it's like, okay, here's a truck of masks. There are beautiful certified N95s on both ends, and everything in the middle isn't so good. <laughs> wow. So the coalition yeah, came together and said, we will develop objective testing standards for masks and then show you by manufacturer and supplier what masks meet the objective standards. And then if you get a shipment, then you can test yourself based on these standards. Uh, we arranged for a number of shipments, including 675,000 masks to be delivered to over 60 locations that met these criteria. And we looked at N95 and KN95 and various other masks. We also provided guidelines for who should use what in what setting. And then we looked to entrepreneurs who did things like, oh, I can take a, a snorkel mask you would use for scuba diving and retrofit it with an N95 filter. And so you, you know, all kinds of creative ways of getting PPE um, out there, as well as working with a number of very large companies on ventilator procurement and ventilator distribution. Next slide. And one of the things that's also key in supply is matching supply and demand. So you probably heard that there'd be some areas of the United States that would have you know, 120% of what they needed and others that had 30% of what they needed. So what we started to do on this website, and it's available still today, is what for your locality is likely the need for PPE and medications and all the rest so you can use this as a supply demand and redistribution model. And we, we use this to redistribute quite a lot of supplies to New York City when New York was having its peak. Next slide. And so some of the other um, things that we've been working on are telehealth. Now let's talk about how we, over the course of the last 12 weeks, went from telehealth being kind of a boutique industry to the way we deliver healthcare. Uh, Mayo Clinic, 12 weeks ago, was seeing 50 patients a day remotely. Today, it's seeing 7,000 patients a day remotely. And you know, I used to be at the Beth Israel Deaconess and Harvard, and a very similar pivot has occurred at the hospitals there. And a couple of things about that pivot. Well, there's a technology component. You know, are you using Zoom or whatever telehealth product you're using? But there's also a policy component. Who with what licensure can deliver what care in what setting? Am I with my Minnesota and Massachusetts licensure allowed to give care to Anthony in New Jersey? I think that's where you are. <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, right. What about malpractice? You know, what about the, the nature of what I'm credentialed to do? So with all these problems, what we ended up doing as a national telehealth work group is coming up with best practices for technology and policy and record keeping, figuring out how the patients 
were reacting to all of this, looking at a variety of data elements in the telemedicine care as to who was getting successful treatment and not, and practice patterns across the country. And of course, doing everything we could to ensure there was regulatory waiver. And as we know, Anthony, because this is a policy update, there is now a regulatory waiver in place that enables me with my license in Massachusetts to deliver care to Anthony in New Jersey without any issue of cross-state licensure for that telemedicine connection. And of course, many people are asking, well, what will happen as COVID ends? Will all this roll back? Two comments. In my conversations with the leaders of HHS and CMS, they've said, all these waivers will stay forever. Assume that telemedicine will be the way we deliver care and routine care across this country with the waivers on licensure and the reimbursement levels all staying intact. As well, the American Telemedicine Association is working hard on this. Their hashtag is don't roll back, right? <laughs> what we saw a few weeks ago is even CMS declared parity for the reimbursement level of a Zoom visit to an office visit, right? Same reimbursement, right? So if you have a cultural expectation, a licensure waiver, the same reimbursement, it's very clear that this telehealth is going to go forward. And you can see some of the actors that have come together to look at best practices. And all the white papers about best practices and converting to a virtual delivery system, all on the website, all downloadable for free. Next slide. So a couple of other work groups you know, and ideas to cover. So here's an interesting issue um, that, of course, we want to aggregate best practices, but we also want to aggregate protocols. And so uh, I forgot, Anthony, do you have any young kids in the home? Uh, I do. They're nine and 11, two boys. Yeah. So what do you do when one says, oh, my ear hurts? You know, what's the protocol, right? Do I, they? I, I tell them to go find their mother. Oh, perfect. Right. I mean, is the protocol for a given chief complaint that you need an office visit or can you do this successfully via a virtual visit? Or is there equipment needed for that virtual visit, remote patient monitoring kinds of equipment that would enable the visualization of a tympanic membrane, a tonsillar pillar or conjunctiva? Anyway, so we've come up with all these care plans and care protocols across different disease states, across all these organizations across the country. Next slide. And the other thing that we've tried to work on is data gathering. And let me tell you, well, here's a challenge. So many of you run Epic, many of you run Cerner, many of you run Meditech, right? You run all kinds of different things. Does the vendor own your data? No, you own your data, right? So how in a country with 5,000 acute care sites and 500,000 outpatient sites do we aggregate data to ask questions like, oh, do anti-malarial drugs work? Does convalescent plasma help? Um, are there certain kinds of interventions we should make based on the acuity of your disease? So what do we do? We work with the EHR vendors, and the EHR vendors created in their products a query 
that can be run by a CIO at an individual site. So this is not any attempt at the EHR vendors to own the data, no. It's giving you the Boolean logic to define numerators, denominators, and data extracts that you can run in your local site. And so when you think, Sean, of the kind of work you do, I mean, imagine if 2,500 hospitals could send you 50 data elements tomorrow. You know, what would you do with that? Uh, I mean, that'd be pretty useful. And so we've actually done this. And uh, we've done it in two forms. One is the numerator denominator form where that, it, that data that's already aggregated is rolled up and then, and then reported on. But the other is a data extract of de-identified COVID-related data elements that are then securely transferred to a central repository registry and analytics. And Mayo Clinic has served as the IRB for the country and is collecting a variety of these COVID data sets. So call this federated research because it does not depend on a giant national infrastructure it just is your EHR is capable of outputting a CSV file, which you can securely FTP to somebody who will analyze it. So it's actually worked really well when we had to be agile with little funding and short time. Anyway, so you, we publish all of this, the standards, the extracts, the methods, all on the website. You can take a look at these links. And you can see we looked at remdesivir, convalescent plasma, famotidine. Um, and let me just tell you so far, basically, I'll give you the high level here. Anti-malarial drugs are bad. Don't go there. Remdesivir is good for some patients. It has some effect. Convalescent plasma is generally good. And starting it early, it has shown to be positive. And we'll have the famotidine uh, analysis in the next couple of days. So I tell you all that because here we've been able to do, in effect, what is, in the absence of a clinical trial, guidance for the country in a federated way in a very rapid fashion. Next slide. And so as we look at the importance of this period from isolation to testing and contact tracing to pre-vaccine return to work, we want a cure because the vaccine, as we said, it's probably not going to be out there until the first, second quarter of 2021. And even when it's out there, a question of getting to 60 or 70% herd immunity, you know, may take a while. So what can we do in the meantime? So over the last hundred years, there have been diseases like measles where we've given the antibodies from someone who has gone through the disease to a person who's in the middle of the disease, especially those with fairly severe disease and achieved a very good result. And so this notion of convalescent plasma, we take those who are 14 days post-infection, they donate plasma or whole blood and then that is used in those with moderate to severe disease, has proven to be a very good approach in this pre-vaccine era. You'll see many papers on this coming out. One we published last week in Mayo Clinic Proceedings shows the safety of doing this. And then coming very shortly is the efficacy of doing this. And this is a remarkable coming together of academia, industry, and government unifying on the nature of getting plasma donated for cures. 
So we've got a thousand companies, you know, working on this, this uh, various coalition, this convalescent plasma group, which started in Mayo, has brought together collaborators around the world, Johns Hopkins, Michigan State, Oxford. And we've even gone further than this. So next slide. And what you'll see is that as we gather data from across the world, that we will openly publish all that data so you can understand efficacy and safety. Here is the paper that I just referred to, looking at the first 20,000 patients that had received convalescent plasma as part of this coalition effort, showing that it is completely safe and likely to reduce mortality. Excellent. So probably it was about, oh, 10 weeks ago that a number of organizations in this country, those that gather blood products and, and plasma, said, how do we organize a public awareness and education campaign and make it easy for donors to contribute? And we came together, a coalition of coalitions, if you will, and formed this advertising campaign and website called The Fight Is In Us. And I highly recommend that you go to this website. You'll see that The Rock has, Dwayne Johnson, has become the spokesperson. And there are a number of TV ads running this week where he is encouraging those who've had COVID to donate. But also there is an ensemble group, which includes uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Helen Mirren, Ken Jeong, Aquafina, Daniel Day Kim, and others who have all come together to encourage the public to donate for convalescent plasma research and treatment. And every single day this grows and uh, we've had an amazing response so far to the public awareness campaign. And we will continue uh, to follow our goal of, of getting 200,000 donated units of convalescent plasma as a cure before we have a vaccine. Next slide. And I should just mention from a policy perspective, you know, obviously working with government on regulatory rollbacks and helping donors get a better experience and easing their, their burden as they get to a donation center. We also need to inform our government leaders and provide them a dashboard and show them where we are with infection, where we will be with infection, what is the relationship of NPI, the uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks and social distancing to infection, and how do they make rational decisions for their localities? So what you'll see again in this resource library of the uh, c19hcc.org site is daily updated decision dashboards showing for each county in the United States what is a reasonable course of action given these observed data elements you see policy and case trend and testing and the reproduction rate of the virus, death trends and population movement, uh, looking even at cell phone data to understand how people are moving around and what is likely to be ICU demand 
mask demand, hospital bed demand. So I can tell you because I'm very familiar with Florida, Minnesota, and Arizona, our Mayo Clinic sites, that at this point, beds and ICU beds in Arizona are becoming quite a constrained commodity, right? So Arizona is very much on a trajectory to see very significant issues. And Florida, of course, is also seeing a very significant outbreak. And just yesterday, Jacksonville, Florida's mayor decided to reverse the masking policy to say masks are really required in Jacksonville. And I only mention that not to make a political statement here, but it's just if you're going to have a large convention, you're going to have to make decisions around that convention based on data. And the mayor has declared that masks are, are required in Jacksonville, given the data, using this decision dashboard that's available to everyone. Next slide. And of course, here's an interesting question, which is that we have social policies that we need to consider in all of this too. Who has access to care? Who is getting infected based on race and ethnicity and age and income and educational level? And so we've tried to, in these data analytics, provide all the data that gives us a sense of social policies, population vulnerability, and created taxonomy and analysis tools that you could drill down on, as well as really developed a nationwide real-time data tracking capacity. And one of the things we'll go ahead and go to the next slide. One of the things we'll all be working on over the course of the next few weeks is contact tracing and testing. So remember, there's really three kinds of testing. There's the do I have an infection today? And that is the so-called PCR test. Have I had an infection in the past? That is a serology test. And there are other tests that are measures of T-cell immunity. And I, I, this is like more medical detail, Anthony, than probably they want to hear. But the issue is, is it our antibodies or is it our T-cells that confer immunity long-term? right? Still being studied. No one really knows the answer to the question. So you got different things to test, the, you know, acute, the recovery and the T cells. And so one of the challenges there is which tests work? How sensitive and specific are they? You know, there are 150 antibody tests. Oh, only three are good. <laughs> and so one of the things we've tried to do is actually test every test and understand which are useful which are fit for purpose, when in the course of infection you should actually use them. Now, contact tracing. This is a tricky business. Traditionally, uh, CDC and other health entities across the world have done contact tracing by having armies of people who say, so Anthony, who do you hang with? Did you right. go bowling with someone, <laughs> you know, and isolating or testing those you have said you had contact with? And that's great, except what if you were riding on a bus and you don't even have any idea who was on the bus with you? <laughs> and this is where we need a technological solution to contact tracing that's a bit more robust. Now, okay, 
there have been a lot of different ideas on how to do this. How about GPS? So Anthony, I see that just last week you were in an adult bookstore and there were two other people <laughs> <next to> you. <laughs> I made this up. This is of course not true. But, but I tell Anthony this because the problem with GPS, right, is it's privacy disclosing, right? You may be at a place that you don't want disclosed, right? And so you don't really want to use GPS. So how about Bluetooth proximity? And here's the idea. I don't know who Anthony is, but his phone sends a chirp. And I'm six feet from his phone that sends a chirp. Yeah, and I have no idea who he is. There's no GPS, but my phone is capable of just simply recording the chirps I was near. And then if Anthony tests positive, and then there is a broadcast that says, anyone who was near this phone should get tested. Ah, it's privacy preserving, right? We have absolutely no idea when, where, or who, but we know there is a signal that says, aha, I was next to a person who tested positive for 15 minutes and therefore I potentially could be at risk. So this is what Google and Apple have done to iOS and Android. Again, you have to, I think, Anthony, be a little careful about this because you see lots of squirrel on social media about, oh, it's the tech companies tracking us or something like that. It's like, no, <laughs> it's your phone simply keeping a record of chirps that it was near with zero GPS, zero identity, and then it is a completely opt-in kind of function by which you could say, I want to be part of a notification network so that if my phone was near someone who was infected, I am notified. And Apple uh, and Google have published this as an open source, completely collaborative approach and the only organizations that even get access to the data are governments, right? State government and departments of public health that would help with contact tracing research. Amazon is working on an interesting tool, which is a wearable, right? And that wearable isn't a phone. It just is a Bluetooth recorder so that you don't even need to buy a phone. You can buy a wearable and the wearable will be able to say, ah, you've been near other folks that, you know, potentially had tested positive. So that's, you know, lots of contact tracing. And there are some applications for public health also being developed uh, by Microsoft, Salesforce, and MITRE Corporation that many governments are using. Next slide. I think that's it for you. Okay, great. Well, I guess... <laughs> You know, that's, sorry, you know, the one that I sent had one more slide, but as I know, you modified it. Uh, so <laughs> to, to uh, conclude, the one other comment I would tell you about this period of time that we're in is that it's critical that as a country, we all gather data, protect privacy, and use that data to make informed decisions. And whether that's supply and demand matching on PPE, whether that's infections based on the various kinds of lab testing and contact tracing, or whether it's novel research as to the efficacy of a cure or vaccine. The whole reason that all these coalitions have come together is all about gathering the data, making informed decisions, 
and getting us through all this. And it truly has been an amazing opportunity for government, academia, and industry to work together. Government funding will probably be forthcoming in the ensuing weeks. And certainly there is great alignment of everyone on all the things that I've talked about today as being an essential part of our getting to a new normal, which probably just maybe to make a statement, Anthony, is going to be sometime in 2021, right? We're going to be in this for a while. So let us embrace our Zoom existence uh, and get this country back on its feet, but it'll be till 2021. My my life won't be normal at all until my kids get back to school, okay? All right? Because let me tell you, homeschooling is no joy, all right? So okay. let's let's leave it at that at that for now. Uh, but go. thank you for that, Dr. Holomka. Very wonderful presentation. And we'll, we'll look forward to some Q&A. Now we're going to have a little chat with um, Sean Sutherland, Director of Healthcare Data Innovation with Information Builders. So, Sean, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed Dr. Holomka's chat. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Honka, let me just say uh, thank you for your leadership in this coalition and your service to our country. I truly appreciate it. Pleasure to be a sponsor here. Thank you. I would echo that as well. Uh, Sean, let's start by talking about the Cures Act. Uh, We know that final regulation came out on interoperability and patient data portability. Um, Just as COVID got ramping up, we know the deadlines have been extended. Uh, but what's your advice for how CIOs can prioritize now to get their organizations ready for the changes associated with that? Yes, I was very excited to see the Cures Act come out. Um, it certainly uh, last year at him, ONC and CMS both signaled the importance of interoperability with some of their joint publications. And now with the Cures Act, I would I'd say the thing to focus on certainly is policies and strategies around um, the relationship and helping patients prepare to own their data. And also investing in the FHIR standard. Um, Interoperability is obviously very important to our country. I don't think it's gonna happen unless it's forced to happen, but invest in the FHIR standard, interoperability, developing those partners um, that you can trade, not just do test trades with um, as far as data and information exchange, but large amounts. Um, There's a doctor that I follow on Twitter who was talking about how uh, his office has all these people that are manually moving documents and scanning things, faxes still, um, all these manual processes. And then he's like, and now I'm going to turn and do some surgery with $100,000 worth of top medical equipment, right? Uh So healthcare technology has always been there. but the investment in the data management piece hasn't. And I think we're catching up. Um, the, the exciting thing I think with FHIR 2 is the SANER. Um, so it's the uh, situational awareness for novel epidemic response specification, which my um, coworker, my counterpart out of the New York office, Bill Morose, is actually working on that specification. So people won't be running around with clipboards and spreadsheets trying to gather how are we doing with PPE? How are we doing with different kinds of supplies? How are we doing with staff and so forth? So that would be my advice as far as immediate for CIOs. All right, appreciate that. Uh, we know that with COVID-19, the industry experienced supported telehealth through the CARES Act and rapid adoption among patients and consumers, creating at new times, maybe complicating uh, and complicating existing data strategies how do you think healthcare leaders should leverage their learnings 
from this experience to further mature their organizations toward a value-based care reality? Well, I'm a big fan of value-based care, have been for many years, the quadruple aim, of course. Um, the thing I love about telemedicine, it's, it's very uh, patient-centered, right? Um, I've had the privilege to work with the Montana Hospital Association uh, for many years, um, and telemedicine is nothing new to them because of the sparse population and the vast distances. Um, so it, it's produced great results in their state, um, and I'm very happy to see um, the, the majority of the U.S. now enjoying the same thing. Um, when it comes to value-based care and telehealth, um, from a patient-centric perspective, I'm going to quote one of my old CMIOs, Dr. Joe Schneider, who's a pediatrician and also interestingly a Philadelphia lawyer, uh, but great CMIO who used to encourage IT to say, look, if you just provide people what you can give them, what's easy to do, um, but they don't use it, right? Um, you're wasting their time and yours. Do the hard thing if that's what it takes for things to be adopted and truly used to forward the ways in which we can um, provide care. Um, as far as maturing toward value-based care, I think it's become obvious that a key to that is data foundation, right? If an organization had a single version of truth, right, these regulations, this situation with COVID was much less impactful because they've got that business agility. They're already successfully navigating the transition from fee-for-service to pay-for-performance, um, and, and that has been borne out in this time of crisis, multiple crises, actually, right? Yeah. Any more thoughts around um, advice for healthcare data leader, leaders? We, if we are coming into a new normal or we'll come into it in, at the beginning of next year, uh, does that change uh, what data leader, uh, what what healthcare data leaders should be doing, uh, the acuity of the crisis and whether or not things change. Does that change? Should that change their approach to what they're focusing on? Right. I think uh, one of the challenges is that if you want to have a true enterprise data management, it has to be a CEO level priority. Um, it can't be departmental in nature. Um, although there's pockets of brilliance that have happened in different departments within integrated delivery networks or ambulatory areas or even payers. But until it becomes an enterprise priority, you're not going to make it happen. And the ROI is there, right? One of our early adoption customers, uh, large integrated delivery network, they had a 10 times ROI just in their first areas of implementation. And that has continued. Um, one of my favorite consultants, Dan Foltz from Parnassus, uh, tends to talk about ROI from a data management perspective. Um, uh, think about what's the ROI of electricity in your hospital system, right? Um, it's pervasive. And if you develop that, right, and analytics are at every level of your organization, not just leadership, now think about everybody in your organization, nurse managers, physicians, uh, service line leaders, they can now operate at the top of their license their experience, and their education, right? The ROI of that is, is massive, and you are then truly a data-driven organization, but you've got to make it a priority. You've got to set up data governance. Um, got to create data literacy. Um, and for me, ultimately, um, the best ROI, right, is having a system in our country that is now based on well care, not sick care. And that's what I think good data management can do. The US. 
All right, very good. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, there's some information builder slides we've got incorporated in the deck. Is there anything you want to just quickly tell people about what they're going to find in there? Well, so Information Builders is a 45-year-old company who's always focused on three things, right? Um, business integrate or data integration, data integrity or data quality, and intelligence pervasively. Um, we operate in 40 countries in every industry, but healthcare certainly is our largest one that we've invested in because healthcare data are more complex than any other industry, both complex and complicated. So we'd love to talk to you about it if you're in the healthcare industry. Very good. Appreciate it, Sean. Uh, all right, Dr. Halamka, let's bring you back in. Uh, Sean, why don't you think of a question for Dr. Halamka, and I'll give you a chance to ask him in a minute. Uh, first question from the audience. Um, do you see hope that machine learning tools may help with successful vaccine development? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I really want to be vendor neutral in everything that I say. Mayo Clinic has created a platform where it has de-identified its entire corpus of historical data and added to that all of its COVID-19 registries and then made that available for analytics companies to work on. And so you'll actually see numerous papers coming out in Nature and Lancet and NEGM on looking at our data to date and looking at who seems most vulnerable, what seems to be the mechanism of action of COVID. And so it's all about large aggregations of data helping understand what targets we should seek for cure and what subsets of population we should look for for vaccine. And uh, so I think the simple answer to your question is, we already have used NLP and machine learning techniques on this large corpus of de-identified data to advance a number of the vaccine-related efforts uh, across, across five different major companies developing vaccines. Excellent. Okay, next question. Thoughts on path check approach of keeping your GPS location tracking data local to you, which can be bumped up against disclosed locations of known cases it also has a Bluetooth component. Yeah, and so obviously there are multiple ways to approach this contact tracing issue. The, the Bluetooth one seems appealing. Oh, but the Bluetooth one isn't a silver bullet either. So what if Anthony and I are six feet away, but there's a wall between us, <laughs> right? So remember all your phone's gonna report is the DB and duration. Right, it's not going to actually say feet. It's not going to say there's a wall. <laughs> and, and so I think you're right, Anthony, that it's potentially as we learn more, it will be multiple modalities that are used to help us with contact tracing. My concern with GPS, as I was getting at, is if you're reporting your GPS location to a third party, you know, you could see how that could be privacy disclosing. If you're keeping your track local to you, and then you are sent the tracks of individuals who may have crossed you, and you can look at that, potentially that could be privacy protecting. But I, I just think we have to be a little careful uh, with centralizing yeah. large amounts of personally identifiable data. And uh, you say, you, if contact tracing, one of the areas you say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It sounds like with a lot of this stuff, you can poke holes in it here and there and say, what if somebody didn't have their phone with them? 
Right. There's always going to be a one-off that makes it not perfect, but does that mean it's useless? And the answer, of course, is, is that we got to do something. Right. And manual contact tracing by public health, sure. Automation based on the thing you carry or the thing you wear, good. <laughs> uh, and we just need to make sure there's appropriate policy constraint around it so that data isn't used in any way that you would think is not respectful of your privacy preferences. All right. All right, next question. How have HIEs fared in pulling COVID-19 data together? I think with this COVID-19 experience, we've just been very creative. Right? You heard that in some ways the EHR vendors have actually really stepped up uh, and made data available. And, and of course, you know, to Sean's comments, the use of fire is wherever possible the preferred approach. Uh, and Fire is a, it's a wonderful standard used for many purposes. Uh, we don't quite yet have an implementation guide for the fire, uh, you know, well called query response COVID nineteen data query, <laughs> which is why we're we're doing you know a variety of things agilely. So I would say the it depends if you want to use health information exchange as a verb or a noun. Mm -hmm. As a verb, I think. I've seen academia and EHR vendors come together extraordinarily well. As a noun, I haven't necessarily seen what we call, you know, sort of the traditional health information exchanges of the past necessarily being major players in COVID data gathering. Very good. All right, Sean. And I'm going to, Dr. Halamka, after Sean asks you a question, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask him a question. So, uh, but let's start with, with you, Sean. What's your question for Dr. Halamka? Well, uh, first of all, I neglected to mention our healthcare-specific platform, which was OmniHealth Data. I should have done that when you talked about the slides, but Dr. Halamka, um, so this was a question. I participate in kind of BI wisdom chats with Dresner Advisory Services, and it's with BI folks all around the world. And one of our recent chats had to do with the importance of the role of the chief data officer or the chief analytics officer? Should there be one? Um, of course, this was not industry specific, but I'm curious about your thoughts on that as it relates to the healthcare industry. So what a great question. So as Anthony knows, I started as a CIO in 1996. And in 1996, the CIO was the CISO, was the CMIO, was the chief data officer, was the chief data analytics officer. You did everything. And what we're seeing as we get more mature, that you need to split that CIO role into about five or six different categories. So I can just tell you from the Mayo Clinic perspective, we're doing a lot of thinking on how to organize around analytics and the notion of a chief data officer and a chief data analytics officer so that you're gathering the data, keeping it secure, normalizing it, but then visualizing it, distributed in ways that can be impactful is exactly the trend I'm seeing. So it's uh, yet again, more specialization in a more complex world. It doesn't belong in a CIO role. Dr. Halampi, you have a question for Sean? Sure, so Sean, you live the dream every day. And of course, <laughs> I have been for 30 years to low interoperability, you know, it's if only the best standard would evolve, then it would all be solved. 
I'm sort of curious your perspective, right? There's technology, the standard. There's policy, who can do what with what data use agreements. And then there's psychiatry. Who is willing to implement data sharing and what is their alignment of incentives? So I'm curious, you know, in your role and in your work, you know, how would you look at those three different elements of technology policy and psychiatry in your real world experience? Sure. So I, I, I didn't mention in my uh, kind of discussion, really, my background really is working for large integrated delivery networks. I did that for over 20 years, Baylor Scott and White, UT Southwestern Medical Center, where we did some collaborative work with y'all there at Mayo from an analytics perspective. So I've, I've certainly felt the pain um, as far as a large integrated delivery network trying to make all those things happen. Um, on the vendor side of things, I do get to work with organizations all across the country who are dealing with this. Um, my personal perspective is, uh, I, I guess the old saying is, uh, there's two things people, people hate, right? Um, the way things are and change. Um, so I think <laughs> good change management has to encompass all those things, right? It has to encompass policy synchronized with the technology and the adoption and or psychology piece. Um, but I think if it is an organizational priority, organizations have the resources to make all three of those things happen in sync as they should that drives the adoption rates. And then it becomes an upward spiral instead of a downward spiral, right? Because as people are empowered to use data to better care for their patients or achieve their departmental goals, whether that's, again, a nurse manager or service line leader, right? Um, they want more of it and it becomes more of a priority and more of an emphasis. And that's what we've seen um, in the customers that use our product the most successfully. All and, right, and go, ahead. go ahead. Comment in that is the importance of vision, senior management guidance and a guiding coalition gets us through the technology policy and psychiatry issues rapidly. And so you can't sort of overemphasize that importance of leadership and a guiding coalition with vision. Much more systemic than my answer. <laughs> well said. Well summarized. All right. Listen, we're at, uh, I think we're at about uh, quitting time, as they say. Um, excellent conversation today. Uh, regarding continuing education, you could use the uh, final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for other events. I want to thank our speakers, our wonderful speakers, Dr. John Halamka, Sean Sutherland. I want to thank Information Builders for making the event possible, supporting the conversation. And I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody stay safe, wear your mask, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.